tonight, for the benefit of uh, the recording tonight, uh, Kev and Mert were both unable to make it due to personal reasons. And uh, as we hadn't recorded for a while, we decided us decided to go solo, but not solo. I invited Mr. Sean McIntyre to come and give me a hand. So tonight we've got Sean McIntyre with us. I'll be interviewing him and uh, we'll learn a little bit about how Sean got into knife making and, um, uh, and and a little bit about Sean. So that'll be good. Thank you very much for asking me, Karen. Pleasure to be here. No worries at all, mate. It's good to see you, actually. We haven't, uh, we you haven't caught up. We caught up... Uh, for Bruce's hammering, which year was that? When was that? When I was down at your place? Was that well, last it was year? It, it, well, it was no, it was year before. It was pre. It was pre COVID, so it had to be 20, 2019? It was beginning of twenty twenty. It was January, so it was twenty twenty because it was in the January holidays. I came down with Oliver. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So it was the yeah. very very start of the whole mess, basically. Hmm. Exactly. And then in yep. the, in March of that year, we had the the Royal Boys out. And then uh, it all yep. fell apart just uh, just about as they left. Well, you had the Royer boys out, and then three days later, I had hip replacement number one. Yep. And the day that I left hospital from the hip replacement is the day they shut down the Melbourne Grand Prix because they had the Italians. You know, some of the Italian crew had come in with COVID, and that was basically the start of the shit hitting the fan, more or less. So for basically, Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, over this period of lockdown, you've um, you've had two hip replacements. Yep, yep, yeah. So first one was in uh, March of 2020. Um, basically, like literally to the point where um, nobody knew what was going on. Um, visiting nurses were coming, but they were starting to do like all the PPE and "Are you okay if I come in the house?" and you know all this stuff was going on. All physio is by telehealth. Like everyone was scrambling to figure out how to actually do stuff via telehealth and work the systems out. Um, physio dropping therabands in the mailbox, not coming into the house, just doing everything by phone. Uh, so that was that was pretty interesting. Um, they they great. Everybody like just bent over backwards to get it done, and then um, was supposed to get the second one done three months later. And that turned into more like 13, 15 months, something like that. As, you know, hospitals were shut down, all elective surgery was canceled, everything like that. And then um, snuck the other one in four and a bit months ago, basically. They were open for a little bit, shunted me in, got that done, back out, same thing. Um, visiting nurse, you know, visiting nurses, everybody PPE, everybody careful, um, all physio by the phone, blah, blah, blah. It's been an interesting time. So I spent five months of it recovering anyway. Nice. Yeah, yeah fair enough. And, and yeah, you wouldn't have been able to get out anyway. So I guess it yeah, kind of worked I, out. I honestly didn't miss a whole hell of a lot as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, we'll go through uh, a little bit of um, – a little bit of history about what made Sean McIntyre Sean McIntyre. I don't know if everybody knows Sean McIntyre, but Sean, how long have you been making knives, roughly? Uh, basically, since the start was in 1993. 1993. Do you do you remember what like your first knife was? Is there is there some knife not that you made, but the one no, that no. you first owned or bought? You're strangely enough. I actually was looking at it today. And before, you know, we even knew that we were going to do this tonight, um, it's in a drawer in a desk. And it's actually a two-blade Barlow pocket knife. 
and it was my first ever knife restoration. It was my sister. She was a Girl Scout. She'd left it in her pack, and it was wet, and she didn't realize it. It was carbon steel, and it had rusted shut. And she gave it. She said, "Here, if you think you can fix this, take it." And I it was my first knife resto, like WD forty, soaked it, got the joints working, took everything apart with steel wool. I must have been like eight years old, and I still have it today. And man, that thing has carved a lot of pointy sticks. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> like, like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because that was about uh, that was about the limit of my abilities at the time. Debarking, debarking, and pointing sticks is pretty. Debarking much what... and pointing sticks. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's everything a knife should be able to do. Absolutely. Um, so, were knives uh, involved in your childhood? Did you grow up carrying that knife? Yeah, or... yeah, always. Yeah. So, um, grew up in sort of semi-rural Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, right. Mom and yeah, mom and dad lived on a couple of it. Like we had two acres. Um, as a kid, it seemed huge. It was it was brilliant. Like you walked out the house past the garden shed and dropped straight into something called Branch Creek. Like it was literally I had a running creek within oh, 60, 70 feet of the house, 30 meters of the house. Um, and man, I was out there like a shot 90 percent of the time, you know, like if weekends or summertime or whatever. Um, we were in the creek. We were in the woods. Um you know, making pointy sticks, basically, um, yeah. sling, building slingshot, yeah. building, building, building forts, BB guns, mm-hmm. pocket knives, slingshots. It was um, all day, every day, if we could do it. Um, awesome. Good, really good, good place to grow up. So, how long were you there? Too? When did you? When did you leave uh, Pennsylvania, or at least uh, uh, Branch Creek? Permanent. Oh, Branch Creek. We left when I was still in high school, sixteen. We moved to another house. Yeah. Um, and I permanently left, permanently left the U S in 90, got married in 97 and moved to Australia permanently in 99. But from about 92, 93 onward, about the time I started making knives, um, I was semi traveling all the time for the next, until I settled down in 99, basically. So you were semi traveling, uh, what, doing what? Just looking around. Oh really? Just, uh, just yeah, just yeah, just, just yeah, having just a gap year. Just having a just gap year. Yeah, basically having a gap <laughs> half deck. Yeah, so I started backpacking in '92 in Europe, um, and then came home, and then worked for a while longer, and then went on an around the world trip. And on that around the world trip, met like started my relationship with Amanda, and then we traveled back and forth from Australia to the United States. We traveled together. So basically for the next from 92 to 99 it was i was on the move pretty much all the time unless i was earning money to go again i was i was traveling and you say you started making in 93 so that was during the same period so yeah there was a really full-on busy period of time how did that all start how did you how did you get into you know what what enticed you to make your first knife right so i always loved them right um, always loved knives, always loved my first, the first thing I ever wanted to do craftsmanship wise is I wanted to do blacksmithing. That was fascinated me since I was a, a little kid. I wanted to do blacksmithing work and no one ever believes this story. But the reason why I started making knives is because they're the gun I, at a local sporting goods store. The gun digest book of knife making was on half price sale and I bought it. And I was just blown away. The knives were good. They were, they were 
that was, it was it was interesting. I I really liked knives, but the concept of making one totally blew me away. And and then when I learned about bladesmithing and I realized that you could combine blacksmithing and knife making into one thing in this all in this same book, um, I was just amazed by it. And and I was talking to my dad about it. Dad's always been a, a woodworker and he, he had a really beautiful shop. He had like a 30 foot by 30 foot lined heated pole barn with all this woodworking equipment in it. And I was never interested in furniture making. You know, it was all right there at my, at my fingertips and I wasn't interested. And I said, I think I want to have a go at making knives. And he looked at the book and he said, oh, seems like this is going to be a bit messy. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, oh. I guess we could kind of quarter off like, you know, we could maybe curtain off part of the shop or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be, if you wouldn't mind, that'd be great. And next thing I know, I, I wake up one morning. I'm still living with my parents. I'm in my early 20s. I wake up, I go downstairs and mom goes, I understand we're building you a blacksmith shop. And I went, sorry? She goes, oh, I was talking to your dad. We're going to build you. We're apparently we're building a blacksmith shop or something. I'm like, sure, sure, sure. Um, and she's like, yeah, she's like, you know, I can, I can stencil it. I'm like, and then twig, like mom and dad, a, they're supportive but B, they wanted a project. They were looking yeah, for something right. to do. My dad, my dad had built his own house, woodworkers whole life. They were bored. And, and so I have a shop still in Pennsylvania. That's, um, 16 foot by 16 foot, not very big. The floors are brick. It's got a front porch on it. It's got a vaulted ceiling. It's got open beam construction. It's stenciled. Mom followed through. She stenciled the walls. It's What's gorgeous. Stenciling? What's stenciling? Oh, really? like, you know, like painted stencils. Like there's floral designs and motifs along the border of this shop, nice. right? With nice. with like four four inch by six inch wooden beams, open vaulted high ceilings, the whole nine yards, windows, insulated. It's gorgeous. It's still there. Um, and... And so then I'm like reading the books and I'm working. I'm in my 20s. I'm living at home. I got a bit of cash because I'm, you know, I'm working full time as a, as a cook. And um, so I started ordering equipment. I, I bought a Birking, uh, you know, bought a drill press. I yeah. went to every auction that was listed. I found an anvil. I built a coal forge. I just filled this shop, oxyacetylene, uh, arc welder. And then I stood in the middle of it. When it was all finished and realized I, I didn't have even the vaguest notion of how the hell to build a knife. Just, I was, I had everything except the how to. Um, and, and I'm just going, right. I am the master of my kingdom and I, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And so, um, in, in the same books I was reading at the time, I learned about the ABS and I thought, well, stuff it. I've gone this far. I better, I better actually book a class and go down and, and learn what I'm doing. So, I went down in, I think that was 1993. I did uh, intro to bladesmithing class with Jay Hendrickson. Um, I'd made two knives before I got there. Um, I bought uh, Pioneer Video, Willie White, knife making with Willie White. Um, and he, he forges knives and followed it by hand. And I made pretty much a faithful reproduction of what he'd done on the video. I made one knife, forged another couple of blades, and then went down to bladesmithing school. And that was, that was basically how it kicked off. Like completely talk about putting the cart before the horse. Like it was the most ass about thing you'd ever seen in your entire life. I've, it's no, it's not really. I see customers do this all the time. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I see this all the time. It's a pretty common thing for people to, to, to feel they need to build the shop before they build the knife. 
Yeah. And, yep. and if you, and, and you know what, Karin, people say to me all the time, like beginning knife makers say to me, what do I need to get started making knives? And the, the, my first response is a space to do it. And it doesn't have to be a full-blown shop, but man, you can't do knife making on your kitchen table. So um, let's talk. Let's talk about space because Sean, you are now in a one. It's your livelihood. You make knives for yep. a living. This is how you make yep. your income, and you're yep. in a professional factory unit now with lots of space. Yep. But when I met you, Sean, you had that was one not of the case. The, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. had one. You had one of the most economically sized and utilized spaces i'd ever seen so let's have a maybe we should just have a little bit of a talk about your knife yeah. shop when you're in australia yeah okay so well and and see this is another thing that just sort of evolved so a man and i so i had that knife making shop like this yeah. unbelievable knife making shop in the u.s not big but it was beautifully it was beautiful and i got over here to australia and finally made the decision that we were we were moving here permanently. We lived in the States. We got married and then we lived in the States for a year and a half. And we both decided that it would be better here in Australia for a variety of all kinds of reasons. And we, I packed up my stuff. Um, I, it was seven tons of gear in a shipping container at that point, furniture and tools and equipment. Um, I brought a power hammer with me, you know, uh, anything that I could plug in in Australia, I brought with me. Um, Amanda's dad very kindly let me some space down in his farm um, on the Mornington Peninsula for a forging area. And then we were living in, in Hawthorne. And for people who aren't familiar with Melbourne, that's like in, that's like, that's the leafy Eastern suburbs of toffee nose, Turek, Melbourne um, through a family friend. And I'm like, you know, what do I do? And it was a quarter acre block and, and I talked to some, my housemates and they all helped me out. And we built a 10 foot by 10 foot tin shed because you didn't need a permit for it. 10 foot by 10 foot was fine, freestanding. Um, and slowly but surely I filled it with about a 30 foot by 40 foot shed worth of knife for making ten, equipment. For the three for meters the, by uh, three, three, three meters by three meters. Three meters by three meters. Um, and, and I had, man, I had a bandsaw in there, a drill press, my Birkin grinder, several disc sanders, a, a workbench that I brought with me from the U.S. Um, I had shelving that was only 100 mil wide that went all the way up the walls and just like everything, you know, epoxy, polishing things, whatever you needed. Everything was like on these shelves, drawers under the benches. Man, that was a seriously compact space. Um, it was and awesome. Yeah, and bamboo and, and, growing up through the floor, I mean, and, it was... and 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 it was in it. Yeah, we'd actually cut. Man, you want to talk about work? Like, thank Christ I was young because we actually cut a three meter by three meter square out of the most luxuriant bamboo you've ever seen in your life. Had to dig an, a two hundred mil mat of roots out, and then I fought bamboo for the next fifteen years. Man, it was like a running battle between me and bamboo, like. Uh, and no one ever knew what I was doing back there. No one ever heard, like none of the neighbors ever complained. And I talked to them about it. And they're like, no, I don't really hear anything. And it was just like this giant organic sound baffle all around me. <laughs> um, and it was great. It was, you know, it was a really good spot. And eventually, um, eventually Ali Bastion came out for a weekend and helped me put a, a, a 1.5 by three meter extension on it. 
and I moved my milling machine and lathe into there. So I had like a little machining side and then the grinding side. Um, and man, that was it. When I was there, yeah. Yep. And man, it was an awesome space. It was really good. Um, if if I did it again from scratch, I would have insulated it straight away. You know, I mean, there were some really hot summers in there. Um, but talk about efficient. I was I was never more than three steps from anywhere like i was it was a seriously efficient it got frustrating anything bigger than a knife and it was a nightmare there's no swinging room anywhere but for for making knives um, man i like the way that you utilize the space what got me about it i at the time had a double garage that i was working out of and uh this is 2012 the alley was there keith was there we did keith's uh, yeah we did keith's journeyman journeyman smith so what really got me though, what, what, aside from the fact that you could stand in that shop and reach anywhere and do anything to do with knife making, everything was within the arm's reach, was the fact that you weren't letting the fact that you didn't have the right tool for a job stop you doing a job. So, um, you cobbled together a, or not cobbled together, fabric cobbled, I guess is the right fabric, word. fabric cobbled, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, yep. a small wheel belt grinder. From oh, the Franken, the, the Franken grinder. Oh, no, that would, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, (laughs) yeah. So here it was I thinking I I needed a small wheel attachment, and here's Sean with a drill press and a wheel mounted on the wall. Yeah, the idle wheel was. You tell him how it works. Yeah. Yeah, so that, well, it's actually, it's it's actually a thing. I bought that. I bought the basis of that at a woodworking show, and some guys built them to make a little horizontal uh, 4x36 belt sander on your drill press. Um, but I didn't use it that way. So I actually attached the idle wheel. I'm swinging my arm. You can't see it. I attached it. The wall was over there. I, um, I attached the idle wheel to the wall at the right distance from the drill press and it had a spring loaded arm on it. So it had about four inches of adjustment and you'd put small wheels. I just got two inch sanding drums from a woodworking shop on a quarter inch shank on it, you know, and you put it in the drill press and that was my horizontal belt sander. And I made like a sliding platform table that slid underneath it that had cutouts in it for the wheels. And man, that's where I did all my small wheel grinding for years. And I don't know, I don't know if it was genius or ignorance. I have no idea, but like. No, it was genius. I loved it. Uh, I walked in there and I was like, I need to buy. I was of the mindset you were when you were 20. I need to buy everything. And now, now now I've I've come full circle because now I sort of look at it and say, well, I don't have the right tool. This is part of the fun. Yeah, how do I figure this out? How do I build? How do I build this? And then I do go ahead and buy the right tool because I'm a fucking tool slut. But we won't get carried away with that at this. There time. is nothing wrong with that, man. There is nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Um, but yeah, uh, and you know what? Also, the other thing too is is that um, not everything used to be a, like uh, you know I'm going about to do the you know we used to walk uphill in the snow both ways to school nonsense. But things weren't nearly as easy to get. You know, in in 2000, I had my first show in Melbourne. Um, and, man, the, the supplier that came to that was Rare Woods with a bunch of Gigi and some Fiddleback Red Gum. And Eugene Demetriotis had just started yep. selling, selling some wood, some timber. Um, I remember spending my first – I remember the first time I spent $25 on a block of stabilized wood. It was the most expensive hand material I bought, you know, so far. Uh, I think in my life, um, Steve Filichetti helped me pick it out. Like it was my first show, 
and and I'm like, Steve, like come over here. I want want you to see this block. What do you think of it? He's like, Oh, that's beautiful. And I remember it. It was it was it was um it was a casuarina. It was a bird's eye casuarina stabilized block. Like, how's that? I remember the first block of stabilized board I bought because it was a big deal at the time, you know? And um man, shit just wasn't available. Uh, if yeah. you wanted to, you know, like that's why Peter Del Raza made his own disc sander. That's why he made his own bell grinder. Um, and and now, like the opportunity to buy anything you want out of a catalog is fantastic. It really is. Like it's a great benefit. But there is a little something missing where people, knife makers, don't figure out how to solve a problem without buying the tool to do it because – that engineering, that guerrilla tooling thing, that helps you in knife making. Because if you can figure out the tool to build it, you can figure out how to build the knife, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So so that was part of it. Yeah, very, very much for me, it's become part of the fun. I've even made uh, draw plates for pulling different shape, different size wires yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, all the usual sort of shit. I'm always sending you pictures of something oh. I've absolutely well, i mean the i mean and, and also yeah and also re reverse engineering the parser from pictures you know and figuring out how that thing works i mean what a what a freaking cool bit of history and tools and stuff i mean it's amazing um that's a cool tool yeah yeah it's a fun that's a really really neat thing i mean and not just a, it's not a curiosity i mean that is an amazing working tool yeah. um and and i think figuring that stuff out really takes you a fair way in knife making it, it honest, it really does. Um, I don't think you get, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks like you get extra credit for reinventing the wheel. If someone's already figured out how to do something by all means, like run with it, but then like make it work for you and also come up with your own thing when you have, you know, when you have to come up with your own thing. Uh, I, yeah, I reckon that's really valuable. Excellent. Excellent. So you moved to Australia. At what point in your in that journey between the, uh, Pennsylvania and and Hawthorne, um, did you decide to go through the process of the Mastersmith, um, the Mastersmith line? Much later. Um, so I actually was a member of the ABS when I did the classes in ninety three, ninety four, and then I'd basically. I'd met a few guys in the ABS and I'd, I'd, you know, I'd gotten really good. I, I did a few more classes. I did three classes total there. Um, I met guys like, you know, Cookie um, and um, Jerry, like James Ray Cook, sorry, uh, Master Smith, uh, Jerry Fisk, um, Jay Hendrickson. And I'd really, I'd, I'd attended a hammer in, so I'd met a whole bunch of other Master Smiths that I didn't have classes with. And um, I really liked the organization. I thought they were a great group of people, really super enthusiastic, um, lovely, lovely people. Um, but then with doing all the, the traveling and stuff, um, I just basically lost touch with it, you know. And I was only making knives for like, you know, maybe three months out of the year. I'd come home. Um, I'd go back to working. I'd start earning money again to buy a plane ticket back to Australia um, and I'd be making knives for, you know, a couple of months. So it was really start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. Um, and then it wasn't until I got back out here in 99, um, and resettled here and started making knives. And I did my first show, like I said, in 2000 at the Ibis, the Melbourne Guild show. 
Um, and, and I still wasn't an ABS member yet. Uh, at that time, I, like I still hadn't rejoined and, um, I actually went to spear to steel show in Texas in 2003 or four. I don't know. It's a bit blurry now. And I met, I saw Jerry there again. And, um, he said, Bubba, cause that's how he says, it's like how he always addresses you, Bubba he said, you're doing some really nice work. And I said, thanks, Jerry. And he said, um, you're, you're not a member of the ABS anymore, are you? And I said, no. And I, he said, I think you should be. And I said, why? And he said, well, because it's, you know, he said, I think you'd bring something to the group. And he said, and I think it would benefit you. Um, and more or less what he was telling me is if I'm going to sell forged knives in Texas, I better be a member of the ABS. Like not better as in a warning. Right. No, 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 no. No, as in as in customers will look upon you more favorably in this part of the market. Yeah. And and um and I thought and about that, it, you know. That's probably true in Texas. I hear that the guild show there is is a big dollar state and they they look at stuff like that. Um there's a lot of uh, collector money in Texas and they look at stuff there, like there that is. For, for the collectible value. That that's exactly right. And also, um, just it's like a foot in the door. So, you know, um, 90% of your work, 90% of work, the work that you do is selling the first knife to someone, you know, and 9% is selling them the second knife. And then they're one of your collectors, you know, like after that, it's, it's, you, you know, it's, it's, they know you, they know your work. They like your work. They trust you. They like you as a person. Well, you know, being a part of the ABS at that time when I wasn't really well that well known was the sort of the first chink, you know, the first foot in the door of these guys coming and talking to you. Um, and so Jerry was absolutely right. And then once I got into it, then, you know, the goal of becoming a master smith became a serious thing. It's sort of like built its own momentum. You know, once you're in the group and you're talking to the guys and, you know, you're seeing the other work and you're being inspired. And because you're part of the group, you know, you're making a connection with people. Um, yeah, it just became, it sort of built its own momentum from there. And, so I'd say that's probably. Kind of, um, that's bef that's not pre-internet, but it is pre-mass um, social media internet. It's early day forums, that sort of thing. It's Yeah, it's that's exactly, yeah. And stuff. yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Knife Network and, you know, Blade Forums was just start. Well, I guess, I don't know if Blade Forums was just starting or not, but it wasn't, you know, all of these things that, like, there was obviously there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, there's no this, there's no that. So, um, you know, guys used to budget, uh, guys used to budget advertising money to take a photograph out in Blade Magazine, you know, and that was, you know, back in back in those days, that might have been like five hundred dollars U.S. or something like that to take out a, a quarter page ad in the back of Blade magazine. Um, you know, your opportunities, other than physically being at a show or being in a magazine, your opportunities were were pretty limited. You know, to get your name out there, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So shows and shows and 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 as you say, print, which um, you know, print's yep. basically dead now. But yeah, mm. yeah, so. Interesting. Um, and uh, got a question here from Tom Rebeck, which was from earlier in the night, but just put it up on the screen a little while ago. Uh, and he says, what's it feel like to be the only ABS master smith in Australia? Well, not accurate because yeah. Thomas Gurner is an ABS master smith. So I'm one of two. And um, Thomas, 
Thomas dates back uh, well before as well. He would have been. Yeah, Thomas is pre pre me. Yeah. Uh, early. 90s, I would. Is it that early? Was it? I, he he early? went over there and did some of the first courses the ABS ran through to Mastersmith. I, I think he might have gotten his Mastersmith sometime after 2000, though, because I remember being at a show with him in Adelaide right after he'd come back and gotten it. So he'd been part of the ABS for a long time, but yep. it's it's more or less a five. It's a minimum of a five year process from the start. You know, if everything goes according to plan, it's it's a minimum of five years until you get your master smith. So I think he got it sometime early in the two thousands. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and honestly, look, uh, you know, being an ABS master smith, it's 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 a lovely accomplishment. I'm not going to downplay it in any way, shape, or form. Here in Australia, it doesn't like it doesn't phase a lot of people here in Australia being an ABS master smith. Um, it probably still means more in the U.S. Certainly, uh, certainly, it means more in the U.S. here, and it and some people recognize it here, and some people. I, I actually had one. Of, uh, I actually had a guy who buys my knives. This is a number of years ago. He came up to me in a show and he said, "Sean," he said, "What, what is your name?" I said, "Sean McIntyre," and he said, "So, what are your initials?" I said, "SM," and he goes, "Right." He said, "He said, so why do you do it backwards?" And that is it. That's it. And I went, sorry. He said, the back of your knife. Why is your initials backwards? I'm like, oh, it's not, man. It's not. It's that's Master Smith. He's like, oh, okay. And he's like, he's like, did you do you call yourself that? I'm like, well, sort of. No, other people like, no, it's a thing. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a thing, but I was yeah. just like, but I was like, I was like, yeah, it was hilarious. He's like, why are your initials backwards? So, um, yeah. So for those that uh, don't know the process uh, of becoming an ABS Master Smith, I, I think we've talked about it at length on the podcast before. Yep, I, I do encourage people to go and Google the ABS Master Smith test and watch people doing the tests. I, yep. I think it's yep. I think it doesn't necessarily explain exactly what makes a good knife, or even a great knife, or even a good forged knife. However, it's a really exciting test to watch. Uh, sometimes yep. with tears at the end. Well, and and I, I would just say that, no, that the, the test isn't actually not designed with the intention. Maybe the maybe in ye olden days, the early boys, um, you know, some of the Fanning Fathers, bless their cotton socks. Maybe to them that made the best knife in the world. Um, but most modern bladesmiths today and a lot of modern ABS bladesmiths today, we recognize the fact that the cut and bend test as set out in the ABS guidelines is actually really to show that you can do three or four very, very specific things with one piece of steel and prove that you can work inside all of those parameters and, and make it work. And that's actually the true test. No one is saying that it's the, the absolute best way of making a knife. It's just proving the fact that you have the control in all aspects of it to do that very specific thing. What a great explanation. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit, for those, again, that don't know you, Sean, you've got an Instagram of McIntyre Knives and everyone should go and check that and follow that. But yep. explain your style and how it's developed over time to what, what you're making today. So what, what did you um, start with? What are you, where are you at? And as uh, Tom Rebex asked, what's inspired you along the way? So um, there's actually a couple of very specific things um, I would say. So, okay, I started out knife making um, 
I was not a savant. You know, I wasn't like, like, oh my God, look at this guy. He's just going to set the world on fire. You know, um, I was very mechanically declined when I started making knives. Um, I just wanted to do it really bad. Um, and strangely enough, I was, I was really very, I was quite good at it early on from a technical standpoint. Um, but my early design work was pretty clunky. There was a lot of blocky square brown handles. Um, very sturdy, very sturdy knives, well-built knives, but they lacked uh, uh, a bit in um, visual appeal, let's say. Um, and so um, I had my first show in 2000, and um, I had very limited experience of a show uh, or seeing other custom knives other than magazines. And I got to the Melbourne Guild Show, and um, I was between Myron Husiak. And for those of you who don't know who Myron Husiak is, um, a, a, an older maker, um, extremely clean, like some of the cleanest work you'll ever see. Um, beautiful, beautiful knives, mirror polish, just impeccable tapers, just gorgeous stuff. Um, on the other side of me, to my left, was Steve Filicetti, and he had six probably 10 to 12 inch mosaic Damascus Bowies on the table. Um, Doug Tim's was across from me and Doug had made a double bit mirror polished battle ax with a stainless wrapped grip. Um, and Peter Del Razo was diagonally across from me. And that was when Peter was in f like full flight. And he used to come to the show loaded with two eight foot tables of his knives, 16 feet of Del Razo's. And that wasn't because he wasn't selling knives. It wasn't like he built stock up for eight years. He was just making an unbelievable amount of incredible knives. And I almost fucking cried. I almost went home and no, I did go home that day. And I was talking to my housemate, Jimmy, I won't forget it. And I said, man, holy shit. Like, wow. Like I've just been absolutely put, like, I don't, I don't know what, to, I'm gutted. Like, I was, I was devastated. And um, he said, well, you got two choices. He said, you either quit or you compete. And I went, yeah, well, I want to do this. I'm going to compete. And, and that was it, man. Like, it didn't matter if I had to mow someone's lawn or, or, or bother the shit out of them until they just relented. Like, I was like a Jack Russell on crack and I just asked everybody everything. And I was very fortunate that guys like Steve Filicetti and Peter Del Razo and earlier in the States too, Jerry Fisk was incredibly generous with his time. Cookie was really generous with me, um, but it hadn't clicked back then. And then, um, and I tell this story and, you know, I'll, I'll tell it again. Like Peter, and I, Peter Del Razo and I became friends. And it turns out he lived like 15 minutes from me in Hawthorne and, and he, the company that he was working for at the time, he, um, he drove my class, my place Tuesday and Thursday every week. And for the next couple of years, Peter turned up at the shed Tuesdays and Thursday for a cup of tea in the afternoon, um, almost, almost day, almost weekly for, for a couple of years. And he basically just hit me in the face with a French curve until I got it. You know, um, he just, you know, he would, he'd, he'd look at something and he'd go, oh, it's just not, it doesn't flow. It's not pointy. It's, you know, 
Um, and it was brutal. Like it was, you know, it was, it was really tough to hear, but I'd looked at his stuff. I looked at Steve's stuff and I thought, whatever these guys say to me, I didn't want to make Peter's knives. I didn't necessarily want to, and I I didn't want to, I didn't want to like copy Steve's knives, but I looked at them and I went, I want my knives to look like that, like that grace, that flow, that aesthetic. Um, and, and I'll never forget this this time and peter probably he'll punch me in the face if he hears this this podcast but this is hilarious i'd i'd made this i was making this bowie knife and i'd gotten this stag spacer and i drilled all these peripheral like radial holes around it and i'd inlaid silver wire pins into it and uh man it was like a lot of it was a like i'd really it was accurate as hell and um peter came to the shed and I'd had it. I had it on the handle, and he came to the shed, and he goes, "Wow," he goes, "That's a lot of work." And I said, "Yeah, it is." And I was, you know, was waiting for like affirmation, and he goes, "That's really accurate. Like all the pin work is really accurate." I'm like, "I'm like, yeah." I'm like, "It really is." He's like, "Yeah." He goes, "It's fucked." He's like, "Terrace." <laughs> he goes, "Smash it off." He goes, "That's fucking awful." And I, I was like, "Sorry, sorry." <laughs> He's like. He's like, nah, it looks terrible. It's an enormous amount of work, but that's fucked. And and I and I looked at it with his eyes, and I went, yeah, that's awful. Like it's so much work, and it's so good, and it's all for nothing. And I just smashed it off and started again. And and um, that's that's basically what it took. You know, that's what it took to just to just um, to just over and over again. If it wasn't right, just just piss it off and start again. And yeah. eventually, eventually the, uh, eventually you just see it. The, you know, the, for me, the lines start to flow the, you know, the, the shapes got pointier things flowed. There was more curves. Um, and that was basically the inspiration mechanically. I could always make mechanically almost from the beginning. I'm not being a smart ass mechanically. I could just make, I could always make knives. It yeah. was the design and the grace that, that really took a while for me. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of facets to making a good knife, and and you know you, you can build a great knife that looks horrible. Mm. It's, oh, it's they very were, very easy to do that actually. That, yeah, <laughs> and they were and they were tanks. Like you couldn't, they were like you couldn't destroy them. Like out in the woods, man, people loved them. Like you know, they were great using knives if you if you just didn't you know if you weren't too worried about the aesthetics of it. So nowadays, obviously, you've you've um, you start. You've always been forging. Uh, yeah, always. Yeah. The basis of, of what you do. Yep. 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 Um, and I guess what would you say you're most well known for then? What sort of knife would you say you're most well known for? Um, probably my Dam- Damascus. Yeah. Basically, Damascus patterns, mosaic patterns, um, and once again, Steve Filicetti. Like I got to give him credit. You know, um, I looked at a pattern on his knife, and I said, "That's just you know, it's blown." I, I had no idea. So that's amazing. It's just incredible. Um, and he said, yeah, it's easy. And I said, oh, it's easy if you know how. And he goes, that's all right. I'll show you. And Every time I've asked Steve anything, he said that as well, by the way. It's, oh, it's easy. Yeah, you just got to do this, this, and yeah, this. And he, and, and he goes, <laughs> and he, like, makes a squishing noise. He's like, you go, he's like, yeah, he's like, well, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, 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 okay. And, um, and, and, and he showed me how to do it. And, and that was it. And basically, you know, I was away. And like anything – you know, the, the thing that I tell people um, that 
that's the thing that I tell people is that uh, when you start out making knives, I, I for one am not impressed by a fancy knife that's not built well. It just it just leaves me it just just absolutely leaves me dead cold. It, I I'm not interested. Um, build a simple knife, build it clean, and then every time you build a knife, or every couple of times you build a knife, learn a little something. Um, a little extra detail, um, you know, even to the point where, you know, guys make, you know, a, a utility knife and they put a lanyard tube in it and they don't chamfer the, they don't chamfer around the lanyard tube, right? It's just this thick walled straight thing. Get a, um, get a pear shaped Dremel burr, put it in your drill press, uh, you know, one with the multi cutters, um, and run your drill press really slow speed. Have a cone in your drill press vise. Put the lanyard tube over it. Come down with your drill press, and the pear shape will cut a really nice chamfer without chattering. Um, and that's a weird. That's a sort of a weird digression. But add that to your knife making. Um, take an old belt, rip a strip of it off, put it through your lanyard tube, shoe shine it, polish the lanyard tube up. Man, that really that little touch will lift a utility knife just that little bit more. Yeah. And just 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 add just add those things to your knife making step by step by step and complexity will eventually build. I've seen and, lanyard tubes with glue still down them. So yeah. 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 yeah it's the little details. Like simple done well is a really neat trick. And, well, my and favorite, so, my favorite knife in my collection. Sorry to interrupt, but my favorite knife no, no, in no, my no. collection is a is a single piece G10 handle um, with a couple of spaces, giraffe bone spaces by Peter Del Rasso, and it it's simple, done done per, to perfection. Do you know I'm yeah. completely fucked off that I didn't buy that knife before you got to it? it sucks to be and you. I'm, and that is that is <laughs> not a joke. That that yeah. that hunter. That from Peter, that utility with the that is absolutely you cannot make a more visually pleasing pleasing hunter. And it cannot not, be done. It's not full of bling. Nope. It's it's just a nope. It's just it's just a simple knife done to perfection. Yep, yep, um, and it's yeah. and it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Mm. So and just and just add those things. You know, you, you just add them a little bit at a time. And eventually your knives will be really well built, but they'll be more complex over time. Yeah, right. Um, so your shop now is uh, you've moved on from that three by three space. And yep. um, and I, I think you'd be happy about that. Um, yeah, uh, yep. And, and you've got a factory unit now. Um, yeah. Which you share with other people. It's a Yeah, sure, space. yep. 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 Um, the question that was: Is there stenciling on the uh, on the wall of the new factory? And Not in my area. Is, is damn straight there is beyond <laughs> stenciling. The one the one workspace has got a uh, like what is it a six meter by three meter high mural of a butterfly and a bee in a honeycomb. It's just extraordinary. Like it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, I think if they follow hyphen knives, they'll be able to see that one. Yeah. 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 Hyphen knives. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And and I can't remember Sam Passy's. It's Samantha Passy is yeah. is also part of it, and I can't remember what her Insta feed is actually. I'll look it up. 
So tell um, us about your space now, how it's changed. So I'm in um, I'm in an industrial area in Coburg North. Um, and yeah, we, we, we've been in there for going on four years now, which is pretty amazing. Um, 225 square meter brick. Um, so it's, yeah, Samantha dot Passy. Yep. Yep. Um, amazing. Samantha's a, just a stunning artist, unbelievable skills. Um, Good knife maker too. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Um, does painting and graphite painting and knives and yeah, she's an incredible artist. And and Eugene, my factory mate, um, he's you know he's just an absolutely brilliant guy. Um, so um, it's two hundred twenty-five square meters. Um, <laughs> funnily enough. I built a small shed up the one end of it because I was getting lost all the time. Um, but no, that's a, I've got a, a four meter by six meter grinding assembly area. Um, and then all my forging equipment is there in the factory as well, which I, when the entire time I, up until four years ago, working in Australia, my forging equipment was always an hour and a half away and having it in the forge in the, in the um, factory now, like January of 2017 was the first time all of my equipment, it was in one place at one time in 20 years. Um, and that made a huge, huge change. Um, and also um, I'll take this opportunity to shout out to Christian Madison who helped like a bunch of guys, but Christian Madison in particular just gave me an enormous, enormous amount of help. Uh, Matt Deschamps, MD Knives as well, um, helped as well to get the space organized. Um, and it's just amazing to have all of my stuff all in one place at one time. Um, because now if I'm working on a knife project and something goes wrong, I can just go back out to the forge. Or if it's going really well and I want to add Damascus fittings, you know, whatever, I've got the opportunity to just go and, and do whatever. So I've got a four by six assembly area. Um, there's a small machining area with a mill and a lathe, um, some nice big layout tables, um, forge area, um, some dedicated heat treating equipment, which is lovely. Um, and yeah, it's really, I mean, you couldn't, I don't know what else you'd ask for, you know, in a yeah. knife making space. It's, it's pretty, Perfect. it's yeah. pretty, it's pretty unreal. And it's, and it's 15 minutes from my house. So like the commute's not bad. Um, you know, and I actually, when I, when I worked and lived on the same property, I thought, boy, there's nothing that can be more efficient than having your shed out the back. And that's just, for me, that's not been true. I've actually been more productive with a commute because you go to work. Yeah. You know, before when I was working in Hawthorne, it was pretty easy to like go inside and answer emails. And then all of a sudden you're eating Cheetos, watching Dr. Phil and, you know, and like, oh shit, I've like, I've lost, you know, I've lost 30, 40% of the day. Um, but going to the factory has been, you know, great. I'll get up and just go and then you're there and you're doing your thing. So it's yeah. been, been, been brilliant. Excellent. Um, somebody asked again, uh, from the comments section there, somebody's asked about the, um, uh, the testing of the ABS compared to the guild. So would skills testing for the ABS be similar or higher level? Yeah. From um, yeah, totally, totally different ball game. Um, so 
so the basic run through of the ABS test, you go through this twice in two different ways. Journeyman Smith, you do the cut and bend test, which is chop the two two by fours, cut the rope, bend the knife 90 degrees, can't break, blah, blah, blah. Um, yep. I'm sure everybody's seen that on YouTube. Um, and then you build five knives and you go to Atlanta. Or there's another place now, but traditionally you actually flew to Atlanta. And then you have um, six judges who judge your knives up to a certain level of standard. Um, and if there's a tie between the three, there's a seventh judge and there's a tiebreaker. So that's journeyman Smith. Um, Master Smith, you do the same thing again, but the test knife has to be Damascus. When you go for your Master Smith uh, five knives, one of them has to be a Damascus European Quillian dagger. Um, and when you go for that test, you put those knives down. The lights are freaking bright um there's six very experienced abs master smiths who close the door and they try and find a mistake that's what they're doing they're spending as long as they need to to see if there's anywhere that you have made a mistake you know every single plunge every single you know satin finish every single join every single you know is the pin can you can i feel the pin in the handle with my thumbnail can i actually just feel it they're they're trying to fail you not to be dicks but that's what the test is um so there's no margin for error really um and the standards have just gotten higher and higher and higher and higher you know when you got guys like you know like rodrigo sofredo and kyle royer and Adam DeRozier and and um, Veronique Laurent and and Haley DeRozier, um, uh, you know when when people like that are spending a year bringing five knives to the table, um, the standard has it has to just keep going up because when the judges see that the next year that's the last thing they've had in their mind, um, and so. Um, Luckily, I tested right before all those son of a bitches came online. Um, you know, so, so, so you, you know, um, you know, and I say that in jest, but I mean, you know, who the hell, who, you know, who wants to, who wants to blade their knives next to Rodrigo Sofredo, um, you know, and be judged next to him? He's he's an ex, you know he's an extraordinary talent. Um, the 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 guild testing is you know when when we're just testing for probationary. The um, the checklist is the you know it's ten out of twenty because we want to get you in we want to get you started you got to be making knives you got to be making knives to a certain standard but we want to get you in there to you know make you better um, you know and for for full assessment it's it's eighteen out of twenty so it's a much tougher test but you know it's it's not six six people judging your knives until you try and fail. So um, yeah. I hope that answers the question. It was a wordy, but I hope it answered the question. No, I think I think it does. And the guild's, um, yeah, the guild's more like about a bit of getting a bit of mentorship as well to help you yep. pass. That, yep. The person yep. who, and, who and, attested you. Yep. Yep. And when you're a full member, you better be. You know, we've got standards. You you need to be a very good. You need to be a very good knife maker at that point. But yeah, for coming into the guild, it's about getting you in and then getting you better. So you've sent me some pictures of some work that you're working on at the moment. I'll put those up on the screen. Do you want, I mean, you can tell us a little bit about them. Uh, 
sure. for the benefit of the uh, well you, you asked me about like what kind of knives i we didn't really answer that question what kind of knives do i make oh. I, pictures worth go. a thousand words here we go they look like this yeah so i'll uh, just get that up there there we go i'll just take us off just a second and we can talk about uh, talk about that so, so this, here we have a uh, tell us about this knife so this just got picked up today um so this is literally the last knife i've made um started before started before my hip surgery and then finished afterwards um and it's uh, 10 and a bit inch mosaic damascus blade um mosaic ferrule sandbar stag handle uh half penny guard with uh so black and steel half penny guard with nickel silver domes um traditional rosette file worked uh end cap pommel full takedown um so that's the end cap at the back there which is when you yeah. say it's hand filed it's filed to meet the contours of the antler yeah no 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 i um that makes us i i'm not happy I, I, that's not my thing um no it's actually rosette filed which if i did i don't have a picture of it that you can see if you look at the end if you look at it end on like you're holding and the points away from you it's got um eight flutes in a in a star pattern around it and then in between each one of those flutes it's cut with a jeweler's file so there's actually like 16 radial lines around it yep. very it's a very traditional abs end cap like this is this knife is my style um but with a lot of like early influences as yeah. in things that i saw on knives that i really liked but just done in the way that i like to do them so um yeah i mean people have a look at these knives if you've got any questions chuck them up in the chat so the damascus is a um uh, a mosaic for the benefit of those um listening on the podcast and 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 anybody that wants to go and check out sean's knives sean's what's your instagram uh at mcintyre knives m-c-i-n-t-y-r-e uh so yeah you can see this knife there um and tell us about this guard, which is uh, is quite a nice, uh, quite a nice piece. So obviously, getting those curves right and the nickel silver, what you call hay penny, is reflecting. Look, there's your hand and your phone in the reflection. Yeah, yeah. no. If I was better with if I was better with computers, I would edit that out. Actually, um, so yeah, so it's a it's a um, it's a forged half penny guard. So that was basically that guard was about. Five, eight, 16 mil square stock um, and all of the fittings that are black are 1065 so they blacken up in a, in the manganese phosphate um, so the like the little I don't know why I'm pointing I can't point it but the little spacers on either side of the Damascus ferrule and the guard and the end cap and the pommel nut they're all forged out of the same material so they all match in coloration um, so forge the halfpenny shape uh, without the bends in it and then uh, grind and mill and surface grind it flat and true and parallel, carve the half pennies in, um, you know, with triangular files that have been ground safe on one edge so that you can get underneath the half penny. Um, when you make a half penny guard, the, the, the curve has to drop out of the guard. If it comes straight out, you've shanked it. Um, just putting it out there. Um, right. and then the nickel silver is actually nickel silver sheet that is domed in a dapping block. 
and then it's it's pinned through the pennies and then the the nickel silver it's pinned on with a nickel silver pin and then the domes are are mirror polished once they're on the knife so the guard was completely finished the guard was colored um and then um i had to very very carefully like dome the pin peen the pin in dome it lock everything in place and then polish them without messing anything up um, or which was getting it askew yeah or getting it askew, yeah, which was mm. – um, there's – I've learned things. I won't do it the same way. I'll do it – I'll modify it next time for sure. Um, and this 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 guard is um, – my friend Tommy Gann, the first time I ever saw one, my friend Tommy Gann did it, so full credit to him. I, I don't – I haven't seen one done like it other than when Tommy did it. Um, and he, he was saying, man, you should really do one of those guards. So that's, you know, credit where credit's due. Um, if you steal an idea, at least um, make sure that you give proper citation for it. That's fair call. Um, yep. So the spaces there are blackened as well. Uh, yep. That blackening, that blackening process. Um, tell us about that. What, that's, what have you? How so have that's you the, that's it's parkerizing. So they're manganese phosphate coated. Um, so all the fittings are taken to about three twenty grit, um, and then they are sandblasted. And then put in manganese phosphate, which gives a really nice, um, nice, really soft matte black finish, which I quite like a lot in my fittings. And then with the nickel silver on top, there's a real contrast between the mirror polishing and the and the matte black. So yeah, so that's manganese phosphate. And then the Damascus ferrule, obviously. Well, I don't know if it's obvious or not. Um, that's the parent mosaic bar forged down um, into the right dimensions for the ferrule um, so that I didn't lose, like I didn't want to just cut it out of the block and then lose the pattern. So it's been pre-forged down to the right size. Um, And then it is, it's heat, it's basically heat treated and finished in exactly the same way as the blade is. If if you don't, you can't match them. Yeah, Yeah. You have to heat treat everything the same. Yeah, because it'll etch a different color and it won't etch it. Yeah, it won't yeah. be the same. And um, here we go, a folding knife, Sean. Yeah, a little uh, a little slip joint, um, trapper style. Um, you know, not really much to say about it. Quite, it's actually quite a lovely knife. Um, I really, I really quite like the way it came out. The blade's actually been manganese phosphate treated as well, um, yep. just by sheer chance. Um, and then you know your standard stainless steel liners, black micarta, just a, uh, just a classic sort of working knife with a few little touches, you know, blackened spring, blackened, um, blade. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm doing that is, uh, I'm, I'm, I move slowly a lot of times physically and, and, and otherwise, um, I'm, I want to start doing Damascus slip joints and I, could build a slip joint that walked and talked and was, you know, flush in all positions, but I couldn't, I was really struggling to do it without um, touching the spring again after assembly. Um, And it was really annoying me. So I just built four or five folders that I manganese phosphate coated the springs and the blades so that I was forced to figure out where the problem was. um, And, so that when I etch a Damascus blade, I don't have that problem. And I think, right. yeah, I think I've, I think I've got it figured out. 
I think I've sorted out some, the processes to the point where I'm happy enough that they'll they'll be right. So, um, yeah, a little learning curve on that. Excellent. And the the folders are something that you're particularly interested in at the moment as a as a diversion from your everyday. And, and that probably is a good uh, a good segue to Brad Stone's question. You get the bug of making blades, and it turns into a passion and an obsession. Have you ever pushed it so hard that you've lost enthusiasm? And if so, uh, sorry, someone just asked a question, push it off my screen. Well done. Um, if so, what have you done to keep it live? Also, he'd like my answer. Right. Okay. Well, I'll think about that. Yeah. What do you reckon, Sean? Uh, um, my ABS Messersmith test was not a lot of fun. Um, Journeyman Smith, I was fine like didn't worry me in the slightest i'm not being arrogant it just didn't um i got to abs master smith and something just went haywire and i was so tense that i couldn't i i couldn't build a knife if my life depended on it like i was just shanking everything um, Amanda didn't even want to answer the phone. Like, and she was just like, oh, you know, she's like, it, she knew like a phone call was going to be a disaster and like just ridiculous mistakes um, that should have never happened. And that was, that was really, really, uh, um, man, I was starting to hate making knives. Um, and then I got, th I, you know, I, I pulled it together with a lot of, you know, um, long nights and angst and grinding of teeth. Um, and, and passed and managed to win the BR Hughes Award for the best knife submitted for that year, which was, you know, a really nice honor um, for my dagger. And then um, I had a chat with Tom again and Tim Hancock, the late Tim Hancock. And Tim Hancock said to me, he said, congratulations. He said, this is the start of your career. He said, you got a decision to make now. He said, you can either just go with what you know or you can be a brave knife maker and you can say, this is the start and I've got a lot to learn from here. Um, and it was, it was an interesting comment that he'd made and I thought about it for a long time. And um, so I think, I think for me, you know, there have been times where making knives seems like a grind because once, once the enthusiasm once the initial enthusiasm is over, let's face it, like anybody who's made a bunch of knives knows there's a whole lot of it that's just drudge. You know, hand sanding a 10-inch Bowie. There's not a lot about that that's <laughs> awesome. You know, podcasts are good and listening to the radio is nice and thank Christ cricket's coming back because that's a week that you know what you're doing. Um, you, know, I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm listening to cricket for a week. And, and so a lot of it's drudge, but you got to find the thing in knife making that really still makes you go wow. And for me, that's the first time I pull a polished blade out of the ferric chloride. When a Damascus blade, yeah. that's that's because knife making slow. Like you know what's coming. You know there's yeah. no surprise. Um, and I'm not surprised when I pull the mosaic out, but it never looks as good as, you know, you've polished it all the way up. It's at, it's at, you know, 800 satin finish or whatever. And the first time you go in the ferric and super clean, it's not a test edge, like shit, man, this is for real. Um, and you pull it out and you've nailed it and, and you go, yeah, that's, that's pretty freaking cool. That's pretty neat. 
that that's what's come out. And for me, that's the the eureka moment. And as long as I can keep doing that and coming up with new things, the rest of the knife will follow along. I like that bit, but but for me, the eureka moment is definitely buffing the shit out of that uh, the handle at the end and just getting okay. it polished up. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Like I've shaped yeah. it all, sanded it, and it looks dull and shit. And then you you give it that polish that makes yep. it look like a finish. Yep, that's yep. funny. But but for me, it's a different thing, right? Because you have to make knives for for a living. If you don't make lives, you don't make it knives. You don't make an income. For me, I don't rely on knife making for an income because if I did, I would be fucking broke, right? Yeah. I I make um. You don't get paid I once make, a year. I don't get paid once a year. I I try to make more than one a year, but the the reality is, I um, I get caught up in a web of um. Of I just I don't know I don't feel I'm good enough or something I don't know and I just don't imposter syndrome. Maybe it's imposter syndrome. Um, oh man, it, it's a thing. It's yeah. a it's a it's 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 a debilitate imposter syndrome is a debilitating thing. I I still I still have plenty of times where I think man I'm I'm not I'm not as good as this as as I should be. Um, and, and there's that and, right so. So I'm a perfectionist. I love my stuff to be right. And I can't make a knife that's right because I don't practice enough. I'm not doing it every day. This is my hobby, right? Um, and so I find that uh, I, I feel that all the time I lose my mojo. But every so often a project comes up or something comes up and I just get back into it again. And I'm just yeah. thankful I don't have to rely on it. I don't have a yep. – yeah. There's a, there's, an ama- there's a fantastic Adam Savage quote. Um, perfection is the enemy of done. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> it, I mean, you can't say it any better. And and that is something like every knife maker, every craftsman of every kind has to come to grips with. You can literally tear yourself to pieces to the point where you will quit what you once loved if you don't come to the conclusion that not. You know, you read in magazines like, you know, I always strive for perfection. No, you always strive to do the very best job that you can. Um, you know, you know, every knife I I try and make better. Every knife, my goal is to make it better than the last. Well, you get to a certain point where you're pretty fucking good at what you do, and like you know, your your gains are pretty incrementally small. Like you learn a little trick or a new pattern, or you come up with a design that's really sweet. You know, like you know, like oh wow, that's that's great. Um, but you know, you get to a certain point where you have to say to yourself, like, I can either achieve the last half a percent or I can finish this knife, someone will be ecstatic with it, and then I can get on to my next idea because I, I'm, I'm 51. I got another – I'm going to say I got another 15 good year working years. I got a lot of ideas that I want to get out of my head in 15 years. And they'll just stay there. If you do, if you do nothing but tear yourself apart about the last bit of perfection, you, you'll quit making knives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think, I don't think I'll ever quit, but it's just, it's what holds me up. And I'll sit there and look at the pieces that I've done of my last one, which is going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be different, totally different to what everyone's done, but I have my mojo going 
on high, on full, active. Because you see it. Because I'm always sending you what I've done in the last hour. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if I if I flip fast enough, it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> and it's great. It's 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 great. It's don't don't ever I, stop doing it. But I hit a certain point. Well, you do it to me. You send me a new tool you've made or whatever. But you you get to a certain point where where you put it down and you and you think. I know exactly where I'm going to go from there, but I just don't come back and do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then yep. someone comes is along it... with a pencil sharpener and I'm all excited again. Yeah. 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 But is that because you've had an, is that because you've had another idea in the meantime? So that's yeah. my. Maybe. Yeah. Sometimes because at the moment I've been pondering the lock mechanism of this thing, because if I don't make it right, it's going to act as a, uh, uh, with too much leverage and just break all the time. So, yeah, and, yeah. and there's no existing examples. There's two existing examples no. of originals because they broke. I'm sure of it. Right. Yeah. So I'm yeah, trying to yeah, think of something yeah. a little bit better. So, yeah, I probably am overcomplicating it. Maybe I should just. Yep. And you well, said to the... me at the start, don't, this is a, this is not something people have done. You've got to make it finished and not, you did say that to me at the start. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it might take like, I would suggest for for I'm I'm not I'm not a total fanboy, but I really do admire Adam Savage. Like you you like when you really get to know like him in his career, man. You want to talk about a maker? Like holy shit, this guy has made he's just made stuff like you wouldn't believe. His book, Every Tool's a Hammer, man. It is really valuable for any craftsman to to understand that every every maker out there suffers from imposter syndrome, suffers with perfection anxiety, um, suffers from like, you know, maker fatigue sometimes, um, suffers from like, you know, like having 15 projects started and just moving them around, you know, like moving 15 projects and not getting any of them done. We, we all go through the same stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and the guys that I admire, um, and, and I don't know what they're like in their in their heads in real life, but when you look at their productivity, there's some there's some makers out there that just man, they seem to have this stuff sorted, and and they're productive and they're creative and they're consistent, like they consistently turn out work, and I I really admire that. That's a that's a totally that's a really really um, very admirable quality in a maker. Yeah, yeah. So. This is another style that you're pretty well known for, which would be what you'd call a ten inch hunter, I suppose. Oh, is it's a, that is, or? it's about a five inch hunter, five inch blade. Five inch, sorry, five inch, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a just a very straightforward um, camping utility hunter knife. Um, so Damascus, I'm um, I'm you know, I make a lot of stuff with hamons on it which I really enjoy. Um, and, and, you know, here's another example of this whole story. I, um, you know, I really started sort of going off Hamon's because, um, you know, there was like, you know, polish it to 2000 and then etch it in this and etch it in that. And then you got to find the Brillo pad made out of unicorn hair and, you know, all this shit and chasing ashy and it looks beautiful. And I was just like, Man, I, I'm just I'm just not enjoying this, and you know, and I also, in addition to two hip replacements, I've had a spinal fusion, and man, standing at a bench and polishing a Bowie to two thousand grit is just not my idea of fun anymore. 
So I, I thought about my knife making. I thought about like what I liked in knives and I like shape and I like color and I like contrast. And so now when I do a ham on, I'm not really, I'm not worried about, you know, getting the last little tiny floating ashy detail. Like I want the shape and the line to be funky and stand out and be really ballsy. And instead of polishing it to 2000, I polish them to 600. You know, I've made, I've, I've made systems that work for me to get a, the effect that I want and B get the return on the physical investment it takes me to make stuff. Um, and you know, a knife like that, I like, I like building that and, and, you know, people like to, to, to own them. So obviously it's all working out. Nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, I guess as a permanent full-time maker as well, um, you've got to have, and this is, I guess, leading up to the next question. Do you only make what you've got orders for, or do you make what you love? Or do you do a mixture of both? I, I do a mixture of both. Or do you make what sells? Well, um, Chasing what sells, it can be a losing proposition because you can always be behind the eight ball. Make what you're good at. Make what you enjoy and make what you're good at. And I think if you enjoy it, you're probably good at it. So I'd say that first and foremost. Um, You will find your customer base. I, I, you know, for the most part, you know, it's going to take some work, but you'll find your customer base. So I, Stop taking sort of when I when I first started making knives, we kept hearing about these magical seven year waiting lists really early on in the 90s. You'd read it in magazines. You know, somebody had a seven year waiting list. Somebody had a seven year waiting list. Somebody had a 10 year waiting list. And and it was like it was the goal. Like the goal was to have a seven year waiting list. I've got a seven year waiting list already and and do all seven people send you like you know the reminder list every every year the reminder email um, Newsflash, they're probably never going to get one but that's okay well, I'm happy. I'm, you know <laughs> yeah. what a lot of shit happens in seven years in yep. seven years people get divorced they die they change hobbies they go broke um you know you, you say to people, and some guys are really good at managing it, but you, you know, I, I had a, I was probably about three years behind at one point and, and I sent, I was sending people emails and they didn't even remember what they'd ordered with me, you know, and I didn't feel like making that knife anymore or, or maybe I, sorry, maybe I didn't make it feel like making that knife anymore. So I decided I wasn't going to take orders anymore. And, um, it was the best decision I ever made. Now, having said that, um, no maker out there honestly doesn't take orders because you get a really, really loyal, good group of customers who love your work and they're really good people and they like you a lot and you develop a relationship. And, you know, if one of them says to me, Sean, gosh, I really like your stag in Damascus Bowie. So I just go, okay, that's all you need to say. We'll leave it at that. And when next time I make a stag in Damascus Bowie, you're the first person who gets a look at it and you have the first right of refusal. If you want it, you take it. If it's not what you wanted, don't worry about it because I never make anything. My rule is I would never make anything that I wouldn't be happy to put on the table at a show. It's just that simple. Um, I don't take requests for, you know, turquoise spacers. I don't, 
you know, my my customer base now, I'm lucky enough, I've got a, a, a really good group of collectors that say, Sean, do your thing. We, we like your work. You know, and then they'll say, oh, man, I really wouldn't mind something smaller. And you go, yeah, okay, next time I make something smaller, you're absolutely first one to have a look. Or, you know, or, and I mean, it goes like you get a killer, you get a, an absolutely killer piece of handle material and you, 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 you send a photo of them to it and you're like, what do you think? And they're like, yeah, please. You know, and I know what they like and you make it. Um, so no, no maker out there doesn't have good customers that can ask for things. Cause that's the yeah. way they're, I would, I would, you know, I would, I would bet my left nut that that's the case. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, the and way it's, the a, it's a works. fair call. That's, that's, that's part of the relationship, the customer relationship um, that you need. So yeah, I, I guess um, we'll skip a bit. We're, we're, we're going, uh, we've, we've talked about a lot tonight, so I'm going to have a, a little bit at the end for viewer questions and Sean, we've already run a bit late. Are you okay for a few more minutes? Yeah, Happy yeah. days. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, what are, you, are, you afraid, are you afraid grandpa's going to fall asleep in the chair and drool? Uh, it's happened before, <laughs> but Kev's not here tonight. Ha, ha, ha. No <laughs> joke. <laughs> hey, Kev, how are you? I know they're having a few issues, so I, I yeah, make, yeah. make light of that. But um, um, so where do you see, like, at the moment, you, you, you're a master smith. Do you see areas where you would like to improve? Is there something that you would like to be able to do better? What is that? Um, honestly, it's not a it's not an uh, it's not a technique. It's not a technical thing. I would like to be a, a more organized and productive maker. I am a very very I'm I'm not good at correspondence. Um, I'm not. Uh, I I am terrible at time management. Um, yeah, I'm shocking at it, and I'm trying to improve that. Um, because I, 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 I don't make nearly as many knives as I should. Like, as in, there's uh, like there's people that are waiting for knives. Like, you know, I could probably make three times as many knives and and sell them. And I'm not being a smartass. I don't make as many knives as I should. Um, and so productivity and consistency, um, and also um, uh, really paying attention to being smarter about um man time into machine time and not i do a lot of old school things uh that are not as efficient as they could be like i for some reason i just grab two inch 410 round bar and forge it down flat to make sand my out of it it that's a lot of material prep yeah, and sure. it's it, and it's just drudgery. And I just I just still think that way from the times when you couldn't just order whatever you needed. And I'm not even being a tight ass. Like it's it's stupid. Like from the time it takes me to prep like W two out of like two inch square bar and big round four ten, man, by the time I prepped it flat, like I'd have the Bowie knife in the freaking oven heat treating. You know, like that's just that's that's just stupid, that stuff. And I'm so I'm, I'm really in the midst of, and you know, I'm not, you know, this is like, I, I mean this seriously, like as I get older and more beat up, that brute force and ignorance shit, that's just, that's gotta be over. Um, I gotta be smarter at, at, um, saving labor basically yeah. is what I'd really like to improve on. Um, knife making wise really want to make some Damascus folders, um, get comfortable with making Damascus folders. Um, I'd, I'd really like to have a crack at some liner locks at some point yeah. um, down the track. 
Um, so, you know, probably that area. Right. And then no barrel knife. No it's, it's, knife. it's not an itch I need to scratch. Look, if you want to build one <laughs> together one day as a fun little thing, I'm all in, buddy. I'm all in. But it's not – It's not. It, I'm not seeing it as my next hot ticket item. <laughs> Let's put it that so, way. So um, the show circuit's opening up again. Um, yep. Obviously, the show circuit in Australia was prior to COVID never been better. We just opened up yep. Perth, yep. Adelaide. Adelaide, even that was in COVID, it was a great show. Apparently, a yep. thousand people yep. through the doors. Yep. Um, what What do you see as the shows that you'll be doing in the in the in the future? Uh, do, you, so, do you see shows as being something that you'll be doing regularly, or just stick to yeah, Melbourne, or yeah, yeah, whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely do shows. Um, a couple of reasons. Um, so shows I do Melbourne always. Why wouldn't I? Um, I've got a I've got a good customer base here. It's half an hour from that Peter picks me up and takes me there. Like, you know, I mean, like, you know, it, of course I'm always going to do Melbourne. It's a no brainer. Um, and it's always been good to me. It's, it's a good show. Um, Sydney, um, probably won't be able to go this year. It's going to be my mom's 80th birthday in August. Um, so that's just life. You know, mom's only got one 80th uh, birthday. Um, and, and she's lucky to get it. So, you know, I definitely want to be there for it. Um, but Sydney's a definite, a definite, definite thing. Uh, great show. Um, I used to do Adelaide a lot. Um, it was never really a terribly successful show for me. I never, I mean, like I've had a few good customers in Adelaide, but it wasn't like a Sydney or a Melbourne for me. Um, and I definitely want to get back to some U.S. shows at some point. Um, if nothing more, maybe even as a spectator. Like, man, I'd love to go around Blade Show and just talk to everybody and just bring all my pocket money and just buy shitloads of stuff and you know go with an empty suitcase one pair of underwear one pair of socks you know like and just fill up with everything that i can well, get a hold of i filled my suitcase up with gamaco shirts to give away right yep yeah and, yep. I, and, and I just i took nothing i took all my my carry-on had my clothes in it and i gave away all the shirts and then filled the suitcase and it was uh it's it's pretty easy to do actually and yeah, i was over yeah. the weight limit yeah 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 this is really, this is totally off topic, but my mom and dad took me, the travel bug started, my mom and dad took me um, to Europe when I was 15 on a bus tour. And and mom actually saved all of our old underwear and sock for like a year before the trip. And we just threw them out in every hotel so that we had room for souvenirs on the way home. And I, it was just, I just thought that is freaking brilliant thinking. Like we just threw out our old clothes the whole trip and then had empty suitcases and brought souvenirs home. Oh, God. Oh, that have, is um, magic. Yeah, I have a new travel strategy. Uh, my my plan, not that this is my interview, but my plan is to do Seki and Blade um, as soon as we, yeah, as soon as I can. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. And, Seki. Oh, Seki would be amazing. Seki would be amazing. Because um, Seki is unreal. That's a, just an unreal show. Um, yep. not, yep. not, yeah, it would be a total... Total. And and I, I've show, I used I've used to do the show in Tierra in France. Yeah. Um, oh, and that was a yeah, 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 yeah. tears. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that was amazing. That was an amazing show. Um, you know, guys like Henri Villon and Des Horn and like, you just get makers from all over Europe and South Africa and, and, um, man, that was a really, really cool show. So it'd be great to do something like that. Something, you know, different, the foreign for lack of a better word, but just to see a different group of people and perspective and way of doing things. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Sean, I'd like to thank you for the time. We do have a question for you. Uh, Richard yep. Morgan says, just hopped on. What have I missed? Not a lot. I just mm. talked shit for an hour. So there we go. Um, guys, thank you for joining us tonight, um, particularly Sean at very short notice. Uh, uh, no worries. We've, um, with Mert and Kev, who both have lots yeah. going on in their lives, couldn't yep. make it yep. tonight. I hope, I hope that all goes as well as it can do. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's all um, Yeah, all good. So thanks, everybody, there for, for, for joining us tonight. And, um, yeah, have a great night. Have a great week. And I'm sure the guys and I will be back on again next week or the week after or the all week right. after, whatever we do, because uh, we pretty much do whatever we do. Have a good one. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the chat, Karin. Thanks, everyone, for listening, if you did. And here's the royal wave. <laughs> See, See ya. ya.